gentlemen, this is Dustin, producer for the Zeus Radio Network. Welcome to the launch of Hear Women Talk Radio. Coming up right now on Hear Women Talk, it's Annette Martin's Paranormal World. We will be taking your calls, 646-652-2071. You may have seen her on television, heard her on hundreds of radio shows, or maybe even read her books. Well, again, it was um, it was kind of the early stuff. Uh, there's a great book called The Ghost Hunters by Deborah Blum. It only came out a couple of years ago, and it's really about the early investigators and research field researchers um, and what they did and what they were interested in. And and it really was those people who really were the first ghost hunters because they were really looking at people's experiences of ghosts. Um, the field work in this area really supports a lot of the lab work. I mean, it's tough to unfortunately bring uh, some of what we study in ghost hunting into the laboratory because we don't really have ghosts who are willing to come into the lab for it. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't that be that wonderful? Yeah, that'd be really great if we could, you know. <laughs> well, you know. And form might be tough, though. <laughs> right. Now, that's something that you and I can do. When next time we go out on our investigation, we can ask the ghost. Now, would you come into the laboratory with us so that we can show yeah. that you're a real ghost? But we have to make sure they, they know what time to come in, and you know how they are with time. So I know. They, they really just don't pay any yeah. attention to time. <laughs> Um, you know, but but we can we can do research and investigate. We can really put controls into situations in the field, and that's something that has been done. Um, researchers in parapsychology, from uh, people such as Gertrude Lake, Gertrude Schmeidler, had some great concepts on doing studies in the field with people who had these experiences to see at least whether or not there was something truly in the environment. So, for example, something that I've done on occasion is you have a place like well, we've gone to the USS Hornet, for example. Correct. Very, very haunted aircraft carrier. And I've taken people in there who did not know where the hauntings were. They just know, you know, they knew the place was haunted, but they didn't know where things were on the ship. And I walked them through the ship with a basic floor plan of the third deck, which has a number of uh, places where the, the ghost congregated, it seems, and that basically had them marked down where they felt something. And uh, these are average people. These were not necessarily people who, you know, were psychics. In fact, the, the closest would be a couple of people who had had a ghost experience in their home. So uh, what was interesting was in that situation, as in Gertrude's work, you do find that people pick up on the spots that other people have reported with no cues whatsoever. So there is good uh, controlled evidence, you might say, that's, that there's something there. Now, what that something is is, is the interpretation we're trying to figure out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, and hopefully, um, I, th- I think that is the most important thing, is to be able to show that uh, many, many different people are picking up those subtle energies that are there, and right. that we can say, yes, we definitely have an electromagnetic field here, there's something going on. Well, we and can do have an electromagnetic field here if we, if we can also measure an electromagnetic field, that's the big question. So we have to have those devices to see how those connect to people's experiences. Yes, and hopefully there's going to be some new um, machines or, or apparatuses where we can uh, tell more and, and be able to measure. So maybe right. that will be coming up soon. I don't know, but uh, it, it certainly is something that needs to be out there so that we can get that proof that there is a ghost there. 
Well, unfortunately, the proof is going to not really come from us. Um, we can certainly give supporting evidence for it. But the problem, the basic problem is what will be accepted as proof. And the real issue is in science in general today, there is a split between uh, people who believe that we are basically machines. We're, we're biological machines. We, consciousness of the mind is a trick of the brain. It's totally neurological. It has nothing to do with anything else. And so there wouldn't be anything to survive the death of the body. Now, that doesn't mean that we still couldn't find residual hauntings, imprints. But the other side of that, of course, is are the folks who believe that mind and body, while connected, are also separable, and that the mind can exist in some form without the body. And that's what we're really talking about is kind of that kind of proof. And it's, it's just not, uh, there's no good definition of consciousness in science, and until that happens, it would, we can prove it to ourselves, and I think we have, but uh, proving it to the rest of the world or proving it to science is just not going to happen until that other question is settled. Right. Uh, okay. You know, let's talk about this some more, but right now we're going to have to take a short break, and we're going to come back with parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach. So hold on. Welcome back, everyone. So, hold on. Psychology area. A very famous parapsychologist about ghosts and uh, parapsychology. And Lloyd, we were uh, talking uh, about um, how we can show and prove that there is definitely a ghost. But there are some other questions I have for you because there are many people who want to know about how they can learn about parapsychology and what kind of educational opportunities are there uh, for them to learn more about parapsychology. Well, first, you know, from a basic level, there are great books on parapsychology out there that seemingly the ghost hunting community um, with a rare exception, I've met a number of people who are truly are curious, but it seems like books aren't read very much anymore. Uh, people <laughs> like to read uh, websites, but that, uh, they're reading each other's websites, which really doesn't help. There are great books out there, and one of the best sources of information for book lists, for recommendations, for educational opportunities, in fact, there's a great new listing for all educational opportunities out there, is the website of the Parapsychology Foundation, uh, and it's parapsychology.org. And they have a blog in their Lyceum section, which is all about education. Um, they have bibliographies of recommended readings. Uh, just great, great, great stuff out there. Uh, for folks who want free books and are interested in history and, and where the initial ghost centers got started, there you go to E2 Google Books and you do a search on psychical research or ghosts and such because there are all those free books out there now that um, are before copyright came in in 19, you know, they're out of copyright now for so the pre-1926, and so a lot of the early researcher stuff is there for free, and you can also get it through a company, um, a site called archive.org. So those are just oh, wonderful. great starts right there. The Parapsychological Association, which is parapsych.org, uh, also has a listing of educational opportunities, lists all the courses that are offered online right now. Although I think that the one of the Parapsychology Foundation is much more up to date, and there are um, there's no academic programs here in the state yet. Uh, there was one, which is where I graduated from. That's John F. Kennedy University, and we had one back in the 70s and 80s. But uh, I understand that Atlantic University, which is the university started by Edgar Casey, which is in Virginia Beach, uh, Virginia, uh, they will be they're looking at starting an academic master's program in parapsychology. And I 
Oh, my goodness. How wonderful. I think they're going to be offering some undergrad courses as well. Uh, in England, there are 20 universities or so that have graduates of the Kessler unit from the University of Edinburgh, and that was a group of uh, the parapsychology unit up there. And they're teaching individual courses or sometimes multiple courses in the UK. And there's a relatively new master's program, which is also available online for distance learning at Coventry University, which is a master's in parapsychology. So there are opportunities that are starting up. Um, it's just, uh, my, I mean, my courses are a great start. And one of the things that people ask me is, well, what good, is, what good are your courses? They're not academic. And the answer is they give you a great basis and broad scope of the field. Um, you end up with good entry to other other courses where you might not have had the background for them. And on top of that, it, it, uh, several of my students have just kind of picked up and emailed some of my colleagues, and when they mentioned that I, they took my courses, they get an immediate response. So, Wonderful. And where are you teaching this? Why don't you course. give us? Yeah, my courses are taught at HCH Institute in Lafayette, California, south side of San Francisco. We teach them locally here. However, um, I've probably had more distance students than local students. And you can go to my website, which is mindreader.com, and click on parapsychological studies, or go to hypnotherapytraining.com and click on the parapsychology tab there. That's the school itself. Or even just search HCH Institute and then parapsychology, and that'll take you to the course description as well. And what we've done is audio recorded all the courses, and so folks have the lectures, and they get all the materials, and then one of the things that I've done for distance students, since they don't have this opportunity otherwise, is I set up time on the phone with my students individually. So for each course, they get a certain amount of time to talk to me and to ask questions, and we chat about um, the subject matter and make sure they understand it. So that's kind of in lieu of tests. I, you might say I kind of feel them out by <laughs> having a discussion with them and they can yeah. get material that way. Um, but that's something you don't find in most of the distance courses. It's, it's actually, I opted for that rather than the actual online function, uh, because with online stuff, you often have a lot of text and video, but there's very little, other than minimal email contact, you have very little contact with the instructor. And this is a little different. I wanted to make sure people really grasp the material, so if we're doing it this way. And then distance students, if they want, can also call in live to our classes, to our live classes, too. I have even here in the Bay Area who have attended because they didn't like the traffic pattern, so they actually attended class via phone. That's great. That, yeah. That's wonderful. So th is there a number that they need to call for that? Um, they can call HCH Institute if they want, which is 925-283-3941. Uh, uh, the website will probably give them more info, as much information. And uh, that's and of course, my the number for the Office of Paranormal Investigations, if folks want to reach you, although um, it sometimes gets kind of busy, so like we it may take a few days to get back to you. But that number is 415-249-9275. Great. My website is mindreader.com. That's an easy one. Very good. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I want to remind everyone, if you want to call in and ask Lloyd a question, the, our number is 646-652. 2071. And I do believe that we have a caller on the line. Hello? Maybe not. I'm, no, maybe not. <laughs> it looked like we did. Okay. All right. Okay. So why don't we uh, go on here? Um, you know, 
you've talked about that there's a majority of ghost hunters that misuse the term scientific when applied to their investigations. So why don't you tell us why is that and where do issues like demonic possession fit in, which of course is something that I am very livid about as well. So let's kind of talk about that. Yeah, there's a uh Steve Chu, who's our director of the um, Secretary of Energy for the United States, was on the Daily Show last, uh, either earlier this year or last year, and he made a really important point. Um, they were discussing the lack of science education in the United States, and it, it's not the ghost hunters' fault. I will, I will say that the reason they're, you know, the term scientific, so using the term scientific, it's not really their fault. It's the fault of the education system and sometimes the media in making people understand what science actually is. Uh, it seems that there's been a more and more of a connection in people's minds that simply using technology, uh, an advanced piece of technology, makes you scientific. But that's actually completely false. I mean, if, if that was the case, that when you use your microwave oven, which is a piece of advanced technology, that's right. Mm -hmm. And it's not the case. Um, in fact, when you use the term technology, technology also refers to uh, flint knives and obsidian spearheads. That was the technology of the time of human beings. So you really, technology is not science. Science yields technology, but technology is not science. And using, for example, an electromagnetic field detector with either a light that, that blinks or comes on or a needle that moves back and forth, just using that is not being scientific. It's what you do with the data and how you look for alternative explanations for that information that comes through, for that reading, that makes you at least attempting to be scientific. And really the scientific method is about um, gathering data, figuring out, just getting some idea of what questions you need to ask from that data, and then testing those questions by doing doing things. You know, So if I think that there are, that goes are connected to electromagnetic fields, then I'll get some readings and see how that works in some of the haunted places. Then I'll go back into new places and see if I get similar readings under similar circumstances, having eliminated all the other possible ways that those, electro that those fields could be generated, such as wiring and water through pipes and things like that. And right, so it's sort of a process of elimination to begin with. Totally. It's that, and it's also testing a hypothesis. Testing exactly. So what we've been doing is trying to figure out how electromagnetic fields, unusual fields in the environment, connect to people's experiences. Because just having a reading means nothing. Having a reading where someone sees a ghost means that at least that reading is connected to the ghostly experience. So you have to have that kind of correlation. And we're listening. It's what you do with the data that really makes the difference. That makes exactly. Sense. Exactly. Yeah. As far as the demonic possession stuff goes, now here we're talking about terms that are religious in nature and anthropological in nature. Uh, possession actually outside um, the Catholic Church and a number of other, um, you know, kind of the, the, the Christian uh, view things, the demonic, you know, satanic, the Satan demon hierarchy of things. The term possession in, in anthropology refers actually to any situation where someone is channeling an entity. So, you know, when people were possessed by the gods, for example, um, the Oracle of Delphi was possessed by the spirit of Apollo. And the folks who are voodoo priests who call in the loa, the spirits, the voodoo spirits, they bring them into their body. They are possessed. 
those are not negative connotations. Those are usually positive connotations. Right. The idea, so what's happened, though, is, and it's probably a good part of it can be laid at the foot of William Peter Blatty and uh, the exorcists more than anything else. Certainly the uh, idea that Ouija boards are evil is was made popular by that movie more than anything else. Uh, but the term possession to many people, <coughs> channeling and mediumship are consensual sex and possession would be rape. That's, that's one way of putting it. One medium actually put it to me that way. And what is pretty clear, however, is first of all, it's pretty rare for anyone to even, for any spirit to even try to do that. It's pretty rare for someone to let that happen. And when I say let that happen, that's exactly what's happening. They're opening themselves up and letting it happen. So, uh, and there aren't that many evil things out there. I mean, that's the other problem is that the demon part of this whole process is a problem because that's a very religious perspective. And on two levels, we can't approach that um, in parapsychology. On the one level, as a science, you can't approach demons because demons are of God, and God is by his nature unknowable, and therefore we can't study God in science. That's why science doesn't deal with that. And I you know, see. You know, it's, it's basically magic. You can't deal with magic. Magic is outside the rules of physics. Right. It definitely is outside the rule of physics. So, the other side of it is that demons only exist in certain mythology. So, you know, there aren't demons in other cultures. So what do you do with that? <laughs> right, exactly. That's always the problem because you have so many indigenous people uh, who definitely believe in demons. And so that is always a problem. And it sort of has bled over into our society as well. You know, we do have a caller on the line. And uh, I think she has a question for you. Hi, Kay from Myrtle Beach. Hello, Annette and Lloyd. It's a great show. I'm really enjoying it. <clears throat> I have a question. Uh, I actually have several, but I don't want to take up all your time. But I'm wondering if you can explain to me what the difference is between um, spirits, ghosts, and guardian angels. Well, spirits and ghosts are often considered the same thing. I think that the, the term ghost has a lot of um, folklore attached to it. And so in some places, you use the word ghost for any visual uh, or auditory thing that doesn't, is not explained that relates to the history of the place. But whether that's conscious or intelligent um, may not matter in certain cultures. So for us, the term ghost we use is the more traditional, I guess you could say, the more popular idea is that it's a spirit, the consciousness of someone that survived the death of the body and is being seen or heard or felt or smelled. And so... In parapsychology, we would probably use the term spirit and ghost and apparition. Apparition is actually the term we use more often interchangeably. Uh, guardian angel uh, has a connotation to it. Again, that's the religious connotation of the angelic. Um, in other cultures, it's guardian spirit, and it might be a guardian ancestor spirit in some cultures. So I think the, the term guardian might be a better term. Somebody who's watching out for you might, might be more appropriate. But then what that or who that someone is, if you're saying angel that has a religious connotation, uh, back to the same problem we have with demons. And if you say spirit, then it could be somebody you knew or an ancestor, such as in, uh, in Japan, for example, the Shinto religion, they believe that everybody has an ancestor that hangs around and watches out for them. Okay. And then I don't know if I can ask one more question. Um, what about animal spirits, you know, apparitions? I 
actually saw my cat who passed away recently. Is that a common thing? Or do, is it common to see our, our pets as well as uh, uh, spirits of people? Probably more common than people think. There's some great book collections, even going back to the 1800s, of uh, animal pet ghosts. And uh, I think it's, it's not an uncommon. I've had that experience myself with a former you know, one, one of my cats from years ago. So it's not an uncommon experience for people to have that. And what's interesting is uh, sometimes those pet ghosts will stick around and haunt the place like you'd expect the previous owner to haunt the place. And so people will ask um, someone. I have a friend who visited a bed and breakfast in Minnesota, and she had been there several times. And um, the cat that belonged to the owner used to try walk around, even get into rooms uh, without too much difficulty when, when she was alive. But so one night, one morning, I think she woke up and uh, said that uh, your cat was in bed with me again. And the woman had said, "Well, my cat died last month." <laughs> <laughs> so the cat was still doing her thing. Kind of right, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Kay, for calling in. And uh, we're going to have to take a short break, and we will be coming right back with Lloyd Arbach, the very famous parapsychologist. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Annette Martin with Annette Martin's Paranormal World and with our guest, the very famous parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach. Uh, we've been talking about parapsychology and now we've moved into ghosts and, and we are now even discussing about demonic possession. And I have a question for you, uh, Lloyd. Uh, many of uh, the ghost investigators that are out there today uh, seem to be getting involved in frightened uh, and thinking that there's a lot of demons when they go into a house instead of understanding about the energy that this may be a ghost who has had uh, a bad situation happen to them before they were either murdered or they died. Yeah, you know, it, it, well, it's that spooky thing. One of the reasons that I think people get into this sometimes is a hobby, because it really is a hobby for most people, as much as they may claim it's not. Um, they want to be freaked out. I mean, the very fact that we see these TV shows where someone on the show runs screaming in the house right. noise in the dark, it's like, come yeah. on. Uh, I mean, if you really were interested and really were investigating this, you would never do that. Exactly, exactly. And so it, it seems to me that what needs to be uh, going on is that a lot of the ghost investigators need to be educated on the aspect of what is a ghost and what is a residual haunting, which we haven't talked about yet. So yeah, maybe we... I was going to say, yeah, that, that's a big, big part of it. Uh, I think the education part is, is the real part of it. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that that is uh, very important because, as you and I know, um, when we go out in an investigation, um, we're, I'm able to talk to the ghosts and I'm able to communicate with them. And many of the groups that are moving out there and doing investigations don't seem to have a clue as to how to communicate. They're not using a psychic and they don't know uh, what is really going on. Yes, they're getting some measurements on their meters, but they all of a sudden become frightened and start calling it a demon, which they are not. Yeah, uh, and personally, if I was there, I would be very insulted if I was the ghost. I certainly would be too. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, and then there are those those who insist on calling, you know, sort of yelling at the ghost to try to get them to do something. It's like, 
there's, there's two reactions you're going to have. If you're a human being and that if somebody yells at you to do something, you're either going to walk away, which is fortunately what happens most of the time, or you're going to slap them upside the head. Right. Uh, and if you do slap them upside the head, they're going to call you evil. Mm-hmm. You know, in the meantime, they're the ones who incited you to do that to begin with. So um, I, don't think that's, I think that's human. <laughs> it's a human reaction. It's not an evil reaction. Uh, so, and their, their behavior being in it, as it as would be considered, I would think, evil or bad to begin with. So right. you know, as well. it, it's, a, it's a tough thing. I think that uh, people have too much investment in the folklore, but most of the people out there, unfortunately, really, their entry to ghost hunting, their model has been some of these TV shows. And not the TV shows from the 90s, it's the, you know, that were like sightings and in search of and things like that. It's really the TV shows like Ghost Hunters, and I think it's probably the big one, uh, where people can get relatively inexpensive, it's still not cheap, but relatively inexpensive equipment, and anybody can go out there and do that. It's like, okay, you want to be a bird watcher? All you need is a pair of binoculars. That's what we need to do. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about ghost watching, not ghost investigating. There's no investigation going on here uh, for the most part. Um, It's it's really about getting readings and then just making judgment calls based on the readings that may may be totally false. So it's unfortunate that people don't have – the thing that really bothers me, I'll tell you, is how little curiosity these folks actually have about what's actually going on. I agree. Yeah, I think that's very little curiosity. We have uh, Joanne uh, is here in our chat room, and she's asking you a question. Is there any danger for an average person to attempt communication with a ghost? Um, Same danger you might have with with attempting communication with any person. You might not like what you hear. (laughs) That's That's very true. Yeah, (laughs) I I think that that's about it. you know, and it's also your reaction to that communication. I think that some people very openly try to communicate, but because of the way the culture is prepared us sometimes, the reaction to even a hello, which is a big surprise because you didn't expect to get anything, is a freak out. So the thing that's important is that if you're going to attempt communication, assume you're going to get communication and prepare yourself for a hello out of nowhere. If nothing happens, you can be disappointed. If something happens, you won't be freaked out because you're prepared for getting that. So I exactly. think that, that's the main thing. Um, you know, the real danger of any of this stuff is the same danger you might have had if your kid brother or sister jumped out of the closet at you as you were walking by. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> and how many times has that happened? <laughs> right. You get freaked out. So it's a sudden unexpected something, and if you always expect it, it's a cliche, but if you always expect the unexpected, then at least you'll be prepared for something unusual that happens and, and want to look for what's, what's causing it, what's, why it's doing that. Exactly. Well, we have another caller on the line, Fonda from Myrtle Beach. Hello, Fonda. Hello there. This has been extremely interesting, and I was wondering, um, all of us have the experience with the movie Poltergeist. Um, does, but does the term poltergeist always have um, an evil or a negative connotation to it, or does it have more of a, a different meaning in, in, in what you both study? Well, well, first of all, the movie Poltergeist, really, at the beginning with the stuff moving around, that was 
typical of the poltergeist case. However, it took a left turn. Um, nobody deals with these from other dimensions, and kids don't disappear into other dimensions. So that was a completely, uh, that was a science fiction film, more than it was a horror film right. in some respects. Mm -hmm. The term poltergeist is actually goes, can be traced back to at least the 16th century in Germany, and it was applied to a very specific type of ghostly or paranormal experience where physical things would happen. So there was, it means noisy ghosts because they were actually getting rappings and sounds on the walls, uh, not voices, but bangings and things like that. So besides physical things moving around, it was those, those bangings. And it, it, it rarely has ever generated anything bad in the sense of harmful, although there are those poltergeist cases where uh, people get scratched or even choked, which does not come from spirits. I mean, the thing about poltergeists is we know and we've applied in the last 80-plus years in parapsychology, it's very clear that we're dealing with something coming from one of the living people, and it's usually the person who scratched is the person who's actually doing it. Um, their own mind is causing these physical effects that other people can pick up, and it's usually related to stress and something psychological or emotional, um, and the stereotype is, is, is kids, you know, teenage girls, but that's a, pretty much a stereotype. It, it's a little bit broader than that. Um, it's, it's, it's bad in the sense that stuff breaks. So I guess you could say that that's a bad, bad thing. So things do break. Right. Well, interesting. Now, like, for example, Amityville Horror, where things were happening with the house, um, I mean, is, is that a believable and, and realistic that they well, were trying uh, to get that family totally, out? No, it's, it's totally an unrealistic. Uh, first of all, the, the case okay. itself, the book, the movie was different, slightly different than the book, but the case itself um, has been on so many levels shown to be false. Uh, the, uh, I actually knew some of the researchers who had gone in there, uh, and the problem with this case, first of all, the case was genuine in the sense that when I talked to someone who knew one of the kids a few years ago, mm -hmm. and when they moved in, um, knowing there had been a mass murder in this house, and that Ronald DeFeo had gone nuts and killed his family. So knowing that, they moved in the house, they, um, they had already talked to the lawyer, actually currently with a lawyer who helped uh, facilitate the sale, had brought up the idea of doing a, of, of how cool it would be if this place was haunted, we could sell a book like The Exorcist. This is what he claimed, mm -hmm. in fact. Mm -hmm. So this is the purpose they went in. But they did, when they went in, they did get really odd feelings, really bad feelings. And apparently, according to this person who said she knew one of the kids, they even saw a kind of a recurrence, that imprint that, we, that Annette and I were hinting at, this residual haunting of mm -hmm. what had happened. Although Ronald DeFeo, who was still alive, you could still see him theoretically as an imprint. So there was that. They moved out three weeks later. They moved out before anybody yes. investigated the place. I see. Um, okay. Jay Anson, who wrote the book, never went to the house. Oh. And there are factual oh, errors. People should know, yes. Yeah, there are, there are serious factual errors. There's a whole scene in the, in the book, in the movie, about the Lutz is seen as some sort of pig-faced demon by the light of the full moon. However, they were not in the house at any point when the full the moon was full. Uh. So, so there was little things like that. Uh, the Shinnecock Indians, with the supposed Indian burial site, the Shinnecock Indians were not there. They were not in that area. There was no burial site. Oh, my goodness. So how much of the story is real? <laughs> well, I think they probably, you know, my guess is they probably had a real experience in the house, even though part of it might be primed by the fact that they all knew that they were moving into a house of a mass murder. Um, they might have had a real experience with the imprint, but uh, because it was pretty, you know, emotionally bad. 
but as far as the rest of it, it was most likely either um, something they learned to believe themselves or um, it just basically was made up. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for clarification and explanation, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you for calling you. in. We're going to take another short break, and we're going to be coming right back with Lloyd Arbach. Welcome back to Annette Martin's Paranormal World. We're here with Lloyd Arbach, a very well-known and famous parapsychologist. We've been talking about parapsychology and ghosts, and if you have a question to ask him, please dial in at 646-652-2071. Lloyd, I do have a question from our chat room, and Joanne is asking, what's the best way to invite a ghost to communicate with us? Well, I think in that you might be able to answer that question a little bit better. <laughs> I certainly can, okay. And, and I do believe the best way to uh, talk to a ghost is, first of all, you need to stay very calm, take a couple of deep breaths, and just close your eyes for a moment and uh, ask the question, a question of the ghost. First of all, you can say hello to them and see if you can get a hello back. Tell them your name and tell them why you are there. That's one of the very important things that I have found is that the ghosts always say to me, well, who are you? <laughs> That's what they always ask me, who are you? And so I always introduce myself to them. And if Lloyd and I are out on an investigation, I introduce them to Lloyd and to our cameraman and tell them that we're there to talk with them and to find out about their lives. So I go about it in a very, very positive tone always. So I feel that that is the best way uh, to get started. And in the beginning, if you are not an intuitive, if you're not a medium, uh, you may just feel something. You know, you may just feel um, their energy. You may feel a very nice, soft feeling, or you could even feel um, um, maybe that they're not well, that they're not doing well, that they're sad. And, and so... If you can start out with just picking up the emotions coming from the ghost, that's wonderful. Then you can move on from there. But always, always introduce yourself. I think that is so important. Yeah, I would say that um, we've had the best luck over the years. I mean, just in general, whether I have had a psychic there or not, had the, really the best luck working with people, um, when I say people, uh, ghosts, by being polite, being nice, and even showing that we're, we've got a sense of humor, that we're there to have fun, we'd like them to join in, um, basically to invite them to participate. So I think that treat, just think about you're, you're walking into their location um, and think about if you walk into someone's house, how you'd want to treat, how you'd want to be with that, the, the person who owns that house. So you want to be friendly and open and uh, really try to get communication going in that perspective. Great. Yes, I totally agree. And we have another caller on the line. We have Cindy from Loris, South Carolina. Hello, Cindy. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Annette Martin's Paranormal World. Would you have a question for Lloyd? 
Yes, I wondered if um, if you think you have a ghost or spirit within your home, is it necessary to bring a psychic in to help this spirit or ghost move on to the other world? Or I mean, because if they're a friendly, is it necessary to do that? No, it's not necessary. Uh, you basically can. Uh, I think the, the question to ask is just very nicely: Who are you, and what can I do for you? I think the the, the one question that's not often asked by people is: What can I do for you? And it seems that people get, sometimes get responses, which is, unfortunately, freaks them out a little bit because they didn't expect it. <laughs> but it, it's really about that. It's really about um, trying to figure out what they need to move on or move away uh, more than anything else. And okay. you, you can pretty much okay. do that on your own. You can also say um, things like, uh, we don't mind having you here, but you might find yourself better off some, you know, somewhere else. Uh, you might want to let go. You can just kind of like, Talk to them a little bit about it. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I really appreciate that. Very good. Thank you, Cindy, for calling in. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Well, Lloyd, I have another question for you. How come uh, so many of the ghost hunters made the use of psychics and in investigations such a taboo when parapsychologists have worked with psychics for many, many decades? Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, um, if they have a psychic there, it's not about them. It's about the psychic. That's number one. Um, and it makes the psychic the star. Uh, it makes it more, you know, if you're holding a piece of equipment, then it's still you with that equipment. But if you have someone who's talking like a psychic, then it's about them as much as it is about you. So I think that there's a, that perspective from the TV show idea. And the problem, I think, also is that some of the psychics you, you know who have been on TV are a little bit, um, abrasive or flaky or dram overly dramatic. So the models that people see of psychics may not be the best, uh, give, them, give them any encouragement that there are actually normal people out there who are psychics. So that turns people off to that as well. I think finally, it's hard for these groups to find psychics that are any good um, or even work with sensitives because they don't know how to. And because, again, these TV shows have basically poo-pooed the psychic. And, and, again, I think it really a lot of times um, it can have to do with, uh, especially in the biggest, the basic model like Ghost Hunters, it has to do with the focus on technology more than anything else and the focus away from people's experiences, which seems to be, uh, for some reason, what they think is scientific, even though it's not. Um, I think those are all reasons why. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I agree with you. And we have another caller on the line. Hello there, Daryl from Indiana. Do you have a question for Lloyd Arbach? I do. First of all, thank you, um, Annette. And thank you, Lloyd, for just having the forum for us to be able to ask questions. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. I, I have a question about whether or not it's possible for someone who claims that they're a psychic. I took um, I, I, there's a, a pet psychic here, same pet psychic, Dan Delgado, and I took my dog to him, and my and he kind of told me that we had a falling out, and he kind of told me that he was going to possess my dog or make sure that my dog did things and he would be able to manipulate my dog with his mind. I shrugged it off. I didn't think that there was anything to it. Within a week or so, my dog really began to act strange, uh, very odd behavior, and whenever I, I used to play his tape, and sometimes when I would put it on, or if my dog either saw a picture of him or heard his voice, he would go, for, he would go nuts. And I have never heard of anything like this where he never had any alone time with my dog. He would just focus in on my dog 
and close his eyes and think. And I, I laughed at it at the very beginning. I didn't think that anything could be done with this. But now that I'm looking at my dog's reaction, I'm not so sure. And I'm wondering whether or not a person can tap into the mind of a dog and control it. Is this possible? Well, from a parapsychological perspective, I'd say no. But from a psychological perspective, here's the problem. Some animals, you know, you got a falling out with a guy. It's possible your dog sensed that there was a problem with this guy at any time you show a picture or mention his, you know, or just give him anything to remind the dog of this guy, the dog reacts negatively because the dog would probably go for the guy's throat next time we saw him. Um, that's, a, that's a, a real possibility. And the other well, side, we didn't argue in front of him. Uh, it, it I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. I was just going to say... Animals pick up feelings. Animals are really good at picking up emotions. So, um, okay. you know, they can, your dog may be picking up on you being re- negatively reactive to him and also may also pick up maybe behaving a little oddly around you just thinking about this guy controlling him because there's an emotional output at that point. Right, and, and what, Daryl, has been my experience with the animals, because I do talk to the animals as well, and the animals read us through the pictures that we send out in our own mind. So if you were upset with this man and you were thinking about that um, and you were sending out those pictures to your dog and the dog was picking them up, and so the dog would act a little erratically, and I can see where that would happen very easily. Mm-hmm. Running around, barking upwards, and jumping around, things like that, that's not abnormal? Um, well, there are dogs that do dog do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, dog that, never, the dog has never done that before, and the dog is, just, is reacting very negatively. I, I, exactly. I'm drawing on it. Right. Well, that's exactly what I was just going to say too, Lloyd, was, Daryl, what you need to do is just dismiss that reading that you had with that fellow and uh, don't think about it anymore because you are sending out those pictures to the animal, okay? And okay. see how your dog okay. responds. Okay. All right? So just kind of forget about that man and just not even focus in on him at all and, and, and hopefully my dog can then get back into normal. To be exactly. Back, yeah. Exactly. Completely like If my dog ever sees this guy, do you think that he might lunge at him? It's possible. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. It might depend on how you react to him at that point in time if you're with a dog. Yeah, we might both lunge at him, so maybe that's not a good idea. Yeah, that's right. Right, Daryl. I mean, you'd have a whole scene going on there and probably would and everything else. So, yeah, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try not to focus in on Dan. I'm going to try to make my, sure that my dog doesn't focus in on it. I'll show my dog other pictures, you know, that kind of thing, and maybe we can, maybe we can work past this. There you go. There you go. All right. Thank you so much for calling in for Annette Martin's Paranormal World. Goodbye. All right. Well, Lloyd, we are coming near the top of the hour here, and we do want to tell our listeners about our new series of guidebooks to ghosts. Have Ghosts Will Travel, San Francisco. So why don't you tell them a little bit about that? Well, um, Annette and I are writing, um, going to be writing a series of books for, um, for a publisher here in, in California, focusing in on different areas, just starting out with the, San, the greater San Francisco Bay Area and eventually we'll be moving out from there. But unlike most of the books that you find about haunted places, we're dealing with places we've actually been to or are going to for the purpose of the book. 
um, to do to find out a little bit about those places, to really check out the stories to see if they're true, and more importantly, to see what Annette picks up on. And so we're giving it the perspective of the parapsychologist and the psychic for this, uh, including in some instances transcripts with Annette's communication with the ghosts that are present, if there are ghosts present, as opposed to residual hauntings or something not ghostly. Right. And uh, Lloyd, why don't you give everyone your website addresses? Sure. I'll uh, mention the book. The first book, as Annette mentioned, is uh, San Francisco. And then we're going to be doing <coughs> the wine country, the Napa Sonoma wine country will be the next one. And we're hoping to kind of expand. We're trying to come up with some really interesting places for us to visit and for, um, for the, the books to cover. But they're going to be, um, people will be surprised, I think, Annette, because there's only like six, six or seven locations in each of the books. Yes, I think they will be. Yeah, it, it's really going to be in-depth. Most definitely. And when, if people want to get in touch with you, Lloyd, uh, can yeah, you web, give them my, your... Sure. My website is mindreader.com, www.mindreader.com. Um, my email is esper, that's E-S-P-E-R, at sfo.com. You can get there from the website as well. Um, and folks can call the Office of Paranormal Investigations at 